What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. You read the Bible, Ringo? Not regularly, no. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. It's been 25 years since Quentin Tarantino had us quoting his made-up Bible verse, memorably intoned there by Samuel L. Jackson. This week on the show, we take a look back at Tarantino's seminal 1994 film, and we consider that movie year 25 years later with our top five films of 94, brought to us by Jules and Vincent, Andy and Red, and Simba and Nala. It's all ahead on this Film Spotting Revisited. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You're listening to Film Spotting with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the 10th film from Quentin Tarantino due in theaters later this summer, and the director's decade-defining pulp fiction celebrating its 25th anniversary. It seemed as good a time as any to revisit our 2012 Sacred Cow review of pulp fiction. It was actually our first Sacred Cow subject. We've gone on to give another 30-plus films the Sacred Cow treatment in the seven years since, most recently David Fincher's Fight Club, which turns 20 this year. 1999, as we've Discussed one of the best ever movie years. Our year-long 9 from 99 series is a testament to that, but 1994, not too shabby either. Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, Clerks, The Lion King, Throw in Forrest Gump, just a few of the year's iconic films. Films that may just come up on our top five of 94 later in the show. But first, from March 2012, here's our Sacred Cow review of Pulp Fiction. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, let's get in character. I'm so interested in Big Man's wife. Well, he's going out of town of Florida and he asked me if I take care of the wife. He's gone. Take care of him? No, just make sure you good time, make sure she don't get lonely. Girl, you see, this is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. Watching the 30th anniversary revival of The Graduate, Roger Ebert wrote in 1997, is like looking at photos of yourself at an old fraternity dance. You're gawky, and your hair is plastered down with brill cream, and your date looks as if you found her behind the counter at the Dairy Queen. But who's the babe in the corner? The great-looking brunette with the wide-set eyes and the full lips and the knockout figure. Hey, it's the chaperone. Great movies remain themselves over the generations. They retain a serene sense of their own identity. Lesser movies are captives of their time. They get dated and lose the original focus and power. The Graduate, I can see clearly now, is a lesser movie. 
Now, I personally don't agree with the esteemed Mr. Ebert's reverse reaction to The Graduate, but his eloquent analysis 30 years later does illustrate one of film's absolute truths. Our cinematic experiences are often different the more non-cinematic experiences we have. Or to put it more succinctly, our take on a film can change the more we change. It's only been 18 years since Pulp Fiction was released in 1994, not quite the generational distance Ebert wrestled with in his review, but it's probably enough time to put Quentin Tarantino's influential film to Ebert's test, which is our challenge for this week. I saw Pulp Fiction opening weekend at a suburban St. Louis movie theater with my college roommate who was from there. It was fall break of our sophomore year, and if not a full-on cinephile yet, I was well on my way, largely because of Tarantino's debut feature, Reservoir Dogs, which I saw the summer before starting school. And I like Pulp Fiction. But if I'm being honest, I remember feeling a tinge of disappointment that it wasn't more like Reservoir Dogs, which was funny but intense. The stakes, as we like to say here on Film Spotting, were ridiculously high. And despite its nonlinear structure, its narrative was more conventional. With Pulp Fiction, it was almost as if Tarantino took all the elements that made Reservoir Dogs unique and memorable and just stretched them out over a series of connected but not completely satisfying vignettes. The stakes, perhaps, just weren't there. About a month later, I saw it again with a group of friends at a Bruin View back home, and this time, everything clicked. I surrendered myself and my expectations to Tarantino and have been convinced of the movie's greatness ever since. Josh, was Pulp Fiction a great movie then for you, and has it retained its serene sense of its own identity? Or is it, like you, a captive of its time? Does the 30-something Josh Larson with the wife, kids, and a mortgage not like to jungle boogie as much as the 19-year-old Josh Larson did? (laughs) What a way to put it. I think the film's held up. My perception of it has changed. It's a film I've been wrestling with since it came out, honestly. And I think we should get to that maybe later in this segment because there are some things that don't seem to work as well, not because of age, but in light of Tarantino's other films Hmm. and where he's gone as a filmmaker and shown or not shown us. But let's start with what a bombshell this was in 94. And I think it still stands up as that. You can still see why it's set apart from the countless imitators that have come since. I think that's one of the things revisiting it that stood out at me. How many Pulp Fiction wannabes have we seen since then? None of them have had the freshness, the vitality, the inventiveness that this movie has even on an umpteenth viewing. Tarantino has such unique idiosyncratic qualities, and they're all absolutely on fire here. When you think of a Tarantino film, you think of terrific tangential dialogue. You think of the nonlinear yet seamless narratives. It's not just that they're jumping all over the place. It's that they're doing it seamlessly. There's the shocking sadistic violence, of course, and the use of the perfect pop song. So all of these things come together just beautifully, probably in a way they haven't, I would say, in any Mm -hmm. of his other films or even in Reservoir Dogs. That's interesting to hear what great affection you had for Reservoir Dogs compared to Pulp Fiction and that I haven't heard anyone say that Pulp Fiction was a letdown, but uh, that's an interesting take on it. Yeah, I'm not sure I still feel that way, but looking back, I think, first of all, it's a little bit of a common rookie mistake for anybody who's just getting into any kind of art form, whether it's music or painting or film to become smitten with something. And then when you see the next 
work by that person. You kind of want it to fit into that box mm, and you want okay. it to be just like it was. And the fact is, Pulp Fiction, as you touched on, and I'm glad you did, it really was groundbreaking. Because of its nonlinear structure, I know there were many films that came out before this that were nonlinear, but maybe not in this exact way and certainly not popular films. I think they were more, for the most part, art house types yeah, of films. Or even experimental. Exactly, or experimental, and I wasn't familiar with them. So that little bit of a letdown I felt, I think, can be attributed to the fact that I just wasn't prepared for what I got from Tarantino. Over time, we've become oversaturated with these types of nonlinear films. And by the time I saw a movie like City of God, for example, which is a movie everyone reveres and I respect, I didn't love it as much because I thought, well, this is just kind of riffing on Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a different subject matter mm -hmm. and it might be more serious or more profound, but it's that same kind of nonlinear, hyper-cool structure and it didn't work for me as much. But I'm not sure in looking back now on Pulp Fiction if I should be happy that a great movie is still a great movie or be disappointed in my obvious lack of development because maybe I was stunted at age 19, Josh. I had virtually the exact same experience with this film as I had that second time I saw it 18 years ago. I liked it even more, actually. I recognized many things in it that I didn't before. And one performance in particular was good then, and I thought it was great now. But otherwise, the same list of things I loved and didn't love then are the same things I loved and didn't love this time around. And maybe we should talk about some of the things we didn't love, because it sounds like there are a few things that didn't work for you then or now. And for me, it's really only two aspects of the film. One of the chapters near the end, the Bonnie situation, the one that features Quentin Tarantino, it's still by far the least satisfying chapter to watch. Really? I think so. Mm. God damn, Jimmy. This some serious gourmet shit. Me and Vincent would have been satisfied with some freeze-dried taster's choice, right? <laughs> and he brings this serious gourmet shit on us. What flavor is this? Knock it off, Julie. What? I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. I know how good it is. When Bonnie goes shopping, she buys shit. I buy the gourmet expensive stuff because when I drink it, I want to taste it. But you know what's on my mind right now? It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. It's the dead in my garage. Oh, Jimmy, don't even worry well, about no, no, it. No, no, no. Tarantino is absolutely annoying as Jimmy. I think that's conventional wisdom to say he's not a great actor, but it's conventional wisdom for a reason. He's not a good actor, and he does really distract and take away from that scene. And forget being racist or politically incorrect. When he says, do you see a sign on my house that says dead blank storage, it just isn't that funny. And it's partly because he can't deliver a line like that and sound cool doing it. And then it's even worse when he says it twice. Also, I felt this then, I felt it now, Harvey Keitel's The Wolf, as a character, as a problem solver, he doesn't live up to the hype that Tarantino creates when Samuel L. Jackson calls Ving Rhames, calls Marcellus on the phone, and he says, oh, well, why didn't you say The Wolf was coming? And now he's all calmed down. That's such a great bit of dialogue. It sets your expectations so high that maybe it's a little bit underwhelming when Keitel does finally show up. Another thing that occurred to me this time, I think a lot of people felt it then, and it's still true now, Travolta got a Best Actor nomination, I believe, for his role as Vincent. Samuel L. Jackson got a Best Supporting Actor nomination, and maybe Travolta has a little bit more screen time, but the fact is, Jackson has more truly memorable scenes than Travolta does in the movie, I would argue. Oh, sure, yeah. And I actually don't think that Travolta handles the casualness of a lot of the Tarantino dialogue, especially at the beginning, the Royale with cheese dialogue. I don't think he handles it that deftly. It feels really stagey. Samuel L. Jackson nails it. Travolta doesn't really. And I felt that was true again, watching it this time. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's the little differences. 
I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. Where I underrated Travolta a little bit, though, is every scene where he's on drugs. I actually think I made a note to myself that when he's at Jack Rabbit Slim's with Uma Thurman, when he's at Lance's house with Eric Stoltz later, I noted that Travolta is awesome high. He really is. When he's mellow, when he's laid back, he's really good throughout the film. Some of those scenes... In the beginning, I'm not sure Travolta's that great. I'd argue that he was he is really good in those scenes, and I was especially impressed in their back and forth with he and Samuel L. Jackson and how natural, and there's pauses, and they wait for the other one to cut. Their teamwork is really impressive to me. I think Travolta brings... Uh, a little bit of humanity in it that was what initially bothered me about it. It just seems slick without any humanity. I think Travolta brings a little bit that actually. It it struck me that way this time. But you're right. Samuel Jackson has an equal role. And you could argue it's his story arc we're following because he's the one wrestling with whether or not he should leave this life behind. Right. And the climactic scene kind of involves his decision. So, yeah, that's a that's a really ridiculous uh, thing. If it did turn out that way, I don't remember how the nominations went down because it's clearly both their story. What bothered me throughout my wrestling with this film and I've watched it probably every couple of years really because yeah because I I initially liked it you know knew it was something new and awesome and you know you couldn't resist it it was just so stylish and I just kept asking myself what's the there there okay what Mm -hmm. and I don't want to put it in the terms of what's this movie about because we don't want our filmmakers necessarily to set out to make a movie about something. Generally, those are very oppressive and bad. So I don't want to put it necessarily to those specific terms. But for a movie this big in stature, I wanted something to wrestle with beyond the technique and the sexiness Mm -hmm. and the appeal and just going along for the ride. And so Tarantino went on to make Jackie Brown. I feel that's his best film. I feel that has heart in it. It has humanity in it. There's something there to wrestle with. See, that's funny because that's one that I would probably say, even though I like the film quite a bit, I don't see the there there. Really? Yeah. But I haven't watched it maybe as closely as you have. And I've only watched Jackie Brown a couple times because it hit me immediately in the relationship between Pam Greer and Robert Forster, Mm -hmm. that these are real people wrestling with real problems it was on another level in terms of emotional connection and just having some substance to it that Pulp Fiction never really had. And it also, Jackie Brown, had all those other elements that Tarantino was so good at. Again, he's not clicking on all cylinders like he is in Pulp Fiction. So I'll give you that. But then Tarantino went on and each of his films, some of which I've liked since, have become progressively emptier for me where there's less and less and less and less there. And I'm including Inglorious Bastards. So I look back at Pulp Fiction now after all of those films and feeling that way, and it seems even emptier in the light of Tarantino's career. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does, except I was tempted to jump in when you made that comment about Inglorious Bastards and quote Vincent Vega and say, that's a bold statement. <laughs> it's a bold statement. I realize that. And I also think a misguided one because I happen to love that film. And probably love it 
as much as I love Pulp Fiction. So I haven't really thought about this film in that larger trajectory of Quentin Tarantino's work. I talked about some of the things that didn't quite work for me this time as they didn't then. On the love side of the equation, the things I really responded to, Bruce Willis's performance. Yeah. I really respected it when I saw Pulp Fiction originally, but maybe because we all got so caught up watching Samuel L. Jackson as Jules and his great wallet and the Ezekiel 2517 stuff, we really looked at him as the star of the film. He emerged as the best badass in cinema. But Bruce Willis as Butch is a force, like you would expect from the best Bruce Willis performances. He's very understated. He doesn't do too much. He always draws you in. But he is this huge presence on screen. I was thinking, for example, and I could point to about 10 different scenes, but even at the end of the film, he's standing by Marcellus. He's standing behind him, and they're having a conversation. Are we good now? Just the way Bruce Willis is standing and the look on his face is very theatrical. There is this kind of theatricality to his performance throughout, but it's subtle. It never draws too much attention to itself. He just increases the energy every time he's on screen. And watching it again, not only did I realize that Really, he's the one that should have got a Best Supporting Actor nomination, but also his story, his through line, is the one I was most invested in. That guy, my father's fucking watch. you have any idea what he had to go through to get me that watch? I don't have time to go into it, but he went through a lot. Now, all this other shit you could set on fire, but I specifically reminded you not to forget the fucking watch! Now, think. Did you get it? So. You believe so? What the fuck does that mean? You either did or you didn't get it. Then I did. Are you sure? I really appreciate Wilson's performance more this time around as well. I loved how he would go from being this tough boxer full of violence to when he's with his girlfriend being overly tender Mm -hmm. and especially when we see him trying to reconcile the two when he gets angry with her you can actually see him holding the boxer side back yeah and then he'll get in his car and he lets it loose so that's that theatricality yeah yeah, you see a guy really wrestling with who he is and wanting to change and i will say this viewing I was digging again to find the there because I want to so much because I love this film so much. And Bruce Willis's character gave me a little something I didn't notice before in that there's this sense of the honor among thieves code that a lot of crime films look into. And I think Pulp Fiction does have a little of that that you can grab onto, especially in Butch. He makes a couple of decisions that have to do with honor. He's involved in all sorts of criminal activity. Absolutely. But there are a couple of times where he decides, okay, I'm going to do something at my own risk because it's the right thing to do. And I think Jules has that moment too at the end in the diner. So I did find a little thread there that gave me something to chew on and feel like, okay, there's a little bit more here. Now, should I have had to spend 18 years to kind of wrestle that out? Or would a really great film have that right away and hit you with it? in addition to its extremely satisfying style? I don't know. It's really a good question, and it's one that I'd like to think that if I went back and watched it for a third time three months after I saw it originally or six months or a year or whatever it would have been, I might have been a little bit more critical, and I really would have analyzed it a little bit more closely, and I think those things would have come out because they certainly came out this time or maybe it's because it's the nature of this show and we've been doing it for a while. And, and so I'm a little bit more in tune with that kind of a viewing. But I think there's a lot more there there in this movie, 
aside from everything else that works so good about it. And we could get off on tangents just talking about how great some of that stuff is. The soundtrack, the dark comedy of it all, the wordplay, some of the camera work. I don't want to spend 10 minutes doing it, but we absolutely could because I want to talk about maybe what the substance is, if there is any, to this film. I think you've touched on it a little bit when you talked about this honor among thieves or characters making certain decisions almost out of some kind of personal conviction or integrity. Over the years, I've, of course, heard the theory that the briefcase, the kiss me deadly homage where Mm -hmm. you open it up and there's something gold and shiny there. I've heard that theory that it's Marcellus's soul or something like that. But honestly, I've never read anything about it. I've never given it much thought. It had never been something that I cared about at all. And it really wasn't something I cared about at all as I watched this film this time either. I just took this film as it was from beginning to end. But one of the things that really jumped out at me, Josh, as I watched it this time, and it at least occurred to me that if not saying something really profound, it is a film Probably just as deep, if not deeper, than a movie we talked about recently like The Innkeepers, the Ty West horror movie. Remember how I talked about how I liked at least how there was this sense of a parable almost being told with this horror film, that there were certain characters and certain moments that all added up to something larger than just an entertaining story. I think that's exactly what's going on with this film as well. And I think that Travolta actually says it at one point. It's after the date with Mia, before she's OD'd, and he goes to the bathroom and he's having that conversation with himself in the mirror. And he's saying, this is a moral test. You're being put to the test and you're going to respond the right way. You're going to suck it up. You're going to go downstairs. You're going to have a drink and you're going to leave and nothing's going to happen. You're not going to put yourself or Mia in any kind of jeopardy by acting on your attraction to her. So when he said that, that did clue me into something. and I made a note of it. And then as you watch out the rest of the film, you realize that almost every character is faced with some kind of moral test. Butch, he says all he cares about is his father's watch. And we know why he cares about it so much. And he proves it. He goes back and he gets it against all odds. Later, he could leave Marcellus to die, but he doesn't. He goes back for him. He does save him. Marcellus, in turn, allows him to live. There's, there is some redemption going on, and I don't think it's by accident that Butch walks out after making that decision to save Marcellus, and they get square. What happens? He walks out the pawn shop door, and what's sitting there in front of him? The chopper. The chopper. The chopper that he somehow has the keys magically in his hand. And what does it say on the chopper? Do you remember what the name of the chopper is? No. I don't think it's an accident that the chopper's name is Grace. It's there. Tarantino is doing some fun stuff. I'm not saying it's profound, but I'm saying it's fun and it's there throughout the entire film. And it goes back even to something that I didn't recognize the first two times I saw it, which is the beginning of the film. You mentioned how Samuel L. Jackson goes through this process where he says he's going to change how he is. He's not going to be a criminal anymore. That's how the movie opens. It opens with the conversation between Ringo and Honey Bunny, and they're talking about their lives. And he's saying, I'm going to do one last job, and then I'm going to leave this life behind. He says, I'm going to change. And she gives him crap because he always says that and never does. He's never a man of his convictions. Now he's finally going to have to be. He says that he will. It's only after Jules redeems him that he walks out, and we believe that maybe he has changed. Every character goes through that kind of moral test in this film and comes out a different man for it. Yeah, and some of that has to do with the honor among thieves thing that I mentioned that I kind of picked up on. But I also feel, and this is going to sound a little bit like I'm trying to have it both ways, but the briefcase thing, which you know came out shortly after the film did and a lot of people have hooked on to, I kind of feel like that never resonated with me. I felt like it was more of a MacGuffin. It is a MacGuffin. Almost as if, yeah, but not if you're tying all these deep thematic implications to it. It's almost as if Parentino put it there to say, okay, this movie 
is about nothing. I'm right. just having fun here. I'm going to give people this mysterious briefcase so that they can do the work of making the movie about something, which is that's, fantastic. That's that's okay. Yeah, but that's what I that's what okay. I but think this is some different. of us want in a good film. Well, and, I do normally, but it's different than a filmmaker being convicted about what kind of movie he's making and yet leaving it vague and open to interpretation. I get the sense, and it's been confirmed by Tarantino's other films. He doesn't really care what his movies are about, which is fine. That's his right. But it's hard for me to hold them up as these fantastic pieces of cinema when they're about nothing. And here with the briefcase, it's just kind of a way to say, you want to make this movie about something? Okay, tell me what the briefcase is about. Not not saying respecting the viewer's intelligence and saying, I'm going to leave this up to you to find your things in it. It's more like, yeah, I need people to have something to hook on to. And then people went and did it. They wrote long essays on the briefcase. And that's fine if it meant something to you. Obviously, every film can mean something different to a different person. But to me, I would just have to do a lot of backbending to make the briefcase have Pulp Fiction have deep meaning to me. I guess I disagree completely because having watched it again and thought about it a little bit more in depth, I have even more respect for Tarantino for having that respect for his audience. I think it takes a lot of craft and a lot of artistry to know exactly what you're trying to say and do with the film and still be willing to leave it as open-ended as he does at the end of the film. And whether it is deep or there are all these resonant themes throughout the movie or not that you can really take away, the artistry is what's there. There is tremendous craft to this film, and I respect that Certainly. for what it is. Yes. He gives you that that title card at the beginning of the film, which tells you what pulp is, and then he goes through and doesn't just give you a film that's loosely a bunch of criminal stories. No, they are all connected by those themes, and they're also all connected by the language. And that's something I didn't really latch on to the first two times I saw it, which is how important the word choices are of the characters. The meaning of words comes up again and again. People debate what exactly they said, what exactly they mean, how you're supposed to interpret it. I love, for example, the scene where Butch gets really mad at Fabiana, I think her name is, because she forgets the watch, as he should. He reminded her. But then what does he say later? He says, all I cared about was the watch, and I didn't express that to you. I didn't explain to you that you could have left everything else and only grab the watch and I'd be happy. He says, you're not a mind reader. He didn't convey what he should have conveyed. And just think about how many times, going right back to the first scene, where he tries to order more coffee. Tim Roth, what does he say? He says, garçon. Mm -hmm, And she comes by and says, garçon means boy. (laughs) And they talk about what a quarter pounder is in different places. They're talking about Tony Rocky Horror at the beginning. And John Travolta says, yeah, isn't he fat? And he says, well, I wouldn't go so far as to call him fat, but he's got a (laughs) weight problem. So there's all this debate going on constantly about what words mean and the implications of that debating the foot massage debating yeah. the the intimacy of that constantly i could go on and on and i won't but but seriously <laughs> no, it's there throughout <laughs> yeah it's there throughout the entire film of course probably culminating in samuel L. jackson and the ezekiel 2517 saying that used to be something that was just empty words i said to sound cool before i killed someone now it has meaning i love that every scene has something like that i never gave much thought to what it meant I just thought it was some cold-blooded shit to say to a motherfucker before I popped a cap in his ass. I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd. 
And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak. And I am the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. There are a ton of motifs, and I don't mean to imply that I think Tarantino is careless because he's not at all. He threads all of this stuff very carefully through him, and the craft there is astounding. It's why it is the best film of 94, clearly. What I'm talking about in terms of, especially when you talk about the vagueness of the film being a good thing because it allows the viewers to do the work, I'm making a distinction between what happens here in Pulp Fiction where we get this mysterious briefcase and we fill it in and what happens in a movie like The Tree of Life where clearly it's vague and viewers are going to bring to it whatever they want and interpret it. Yet I also get the sense that Malick is making something very personal with deep meaning to him, he's Mm -hmm. after something, okay? In Pulp Fiction, I don't get the sense that Tarantino is after anything. Even with all of these motifs, I think they're very well thought out. They're very clever. They tie the movie together, beautifully crafted in that way, and I respect it for that. But I don't want to get into the territory of respecting Pulp Fiction for allowing the viewer to do the work because I just don't think that Tarantino is that interested in it. I think the briefcase is just another idiosyncratic element. It's like the square that Uma Thurman draws when she says, don't be a square. It's like the way in the opening credits, unlike any other film I've seen, the music suddenly shifts from one song into another. These are all awesome little touches that I love and adore, but they mean nothing. As much as you also said it's the best film of 1994 you are not giving it enough credit and <laughs> I'm already predicting the flood of emails please don't send us the emails telling us how Josh never should have compared Pulp Fiction to the Tree of Life I think you know what he was going for even though I too disagree with you completely because they are very different films with very different objectives I think anyone could say that this one is much more interested in simply entertaining you but for me I guess what I am trying to say about the film is that I think it culminates ultimately in something perhaps just as personal as what Malik is going for in the Tree of Life. It's just not maybe as challenging, but it's just as well-crafted. It's just oh, yeah. as well-crafted. Oh, and that's enough for me. Yeah. So. And, and yeah, again, <laughs> to clarify, it is the best film in 94. And, you know, we're quibbling with a lot of things because it has the stature of being 18 years on and still considered one of the greats. That's why Tree of Life comes to mind. I consider it one of the greats, too. So I think about the films equally. If you're talking about Pulp Fiction as one of these, it's got high standards to me. All right. Well, what do you think of Pulp Fiction? Do you have as high standards as Josh does. Let us know what you thought about our take and your feelings about the film. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 206-203-2463, or find us at twitter.com slash filmspotting and facebook.com slash filmspotting. We're not ready to leave 1994 behind. Stay with us as we count down our top five films of that year. I keep hearing you're concerned about my happiness But all that thought you're giving me is I guess if I were walking in your shoes, I wouldn't worry enough. Are you and your friends are worried about me? I'm having lots of fun. Counting flowers on the wall, that don't bother me at all. Playing solitaire till dawn with the deck of 51. 
Charlie, from what I understand, it's just this bunch of frauds showing off an erudition they didn't really have. All you have to do The problem is, is, that is, it seems I was one of those frauds. What? What, what do you mean? They gave me the answers. They gave you the answers. That's a scene from the movie Quiz Show, a Best Picture nominee from 1994, and we'd both agree, Josh, one of the best films of 1994, but not quite good enough, it seems, to make our list this nope, week. couldn't find a spot on mine. There you go. Just an honorable mention on the film spotting top five, the best films of 1994, which we'll get to in a moment. But we do have to share the poll results from last week because we asked you at filmspotting.net whether or not you thought Pulp Fiction was the best film of 1994. Simple as that, your choices were. Vincent, we happy? Yeah, we happy. No man, I don't eat pork. Okay, so what do film spotting listeners think? Are they all in on Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction? They're not all in. It was the clear winner, 69%. 31% said no. I actually would have expected that to be a higher yes. Really? Yeah. yeah. I would have predicted right around two-thirds. Yeah. Oh, okay. I would have predicted two-thirds, I think. So seeing it at 69 Seventy percent. That's that seems about right. I'd like to know what some of the other films were that people suggested or were thinking of. That yeah. would be interesting to hear because Pulp Fiction does obviously come to the top of your mind right away. So. Yeah, my guess is as we get into our top five, we'll cover a lot of the same Maybe. ground as many film spotting listeners. And if we didn't, we'll certainly hear from them <laughs> as they email feedback at filmspotting.net. And we wanted to get to those poll results because it did partly determine how we formed our list. We agree that Pulp Fiction is the best film of 1994. And so because of that, there was really no need to put it on this list at number one. We spent the entire first segment of the show talking about it. So Pulp Fiction is off. This is the Pulp Fiction memorial list. We had to come up with five other choices that were not that Quentin Tarantino film. Josh, what's your number five? My number five from 94, and I'll say before getting into this that this was a very daunting challenge. It's like trying to squeeze in a top five list of your top ten list for a year that you may have not even been reviewing Or, I mean, this was, this almost gave me hives trying to do this, but I had to set aside my top 10 proclivities and just dive right into it. Look at the films I remember best, most fondly, see how many I can before we recorded and come up with this list. Well, I always say if you don't break out in hives preparing for a top five list, then you're not working hard enough. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Number five was Heavenly Creatures. Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. This is why the Lord of the Rings trilogy worked. This is Jackson's fourth feature, and it proved that he could bring a human dimension to fantasy. Before this, he did the horror comedies Bad Taste and Dead Alive, and there was also the R-rated puppet extravaganza Meet the Feebles, which if you've never seen is definitely worth checking out. Here he tackles an intense crime drama about two teen girls whose shared fantasy life gets out of control. They are living among two beautiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters. You cannot know nor yet try to guess the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few. They are so rare. So he's working with some of the same elements, but also new, different sorts of pure drama elements and really melds them together beautifully. Heavenly Creatures also introduced the movies to Kate Winslet, 
which has turned out to be quite a good thing. And Melanie Linsky. And I was just going to say, Melanie Linsky isn't too bad either. Mm-hmm. And things like Away We Go, where she has small parts, she really knocks them out of the park. So Heavenly Creatures, my number five. It's a great choice. I'm a big fan of that movie as well. For my number five film of 1994, I'm going to go a little more off the grid than that, more obscure than Heavenly Creatures. It's actually been a film that's been hard to find, I think maybe now available on DVD, but for a long time it wasn't. And it's an Italian film from the director Nanny Moretti called Caro Diario, which translates to Dear Diary. And I'll note that I strongly considered another unconventional kind of documentary. I don't think you can really call this film a documentary, but I'm a big fan as well of the 1994 film, 32 short films about Glenn Gould. But I went with Moretti in the end because he's kind of like the Italian Woody Allen. He's a writer, he's a director, he's an actor. He was always really known for his comedies, but then made more serious films like The Sun's Room, which won the Palm d'Or at Cannes in 2001. Actually, just this past year, 2012, Nanny Moretti was the head of the jury there at Cannes. This is a movie, like I said, you can't really call a documentary, but it's shot like one. It's more of a, a biographical, personal essay. It's divided up into three parts. On My Vespa, Islands, and Doctors. And you see Moretti riding his Vespa around Rome in the first one, and he's talking about movies, and he's actually on this bizarre quest to try to find Jennifer Beals from Flashdance. It's very funny. Jennifer Beals! Jennifer Beals! Jennifer Beals! Jennifer Beals! The Flashdance. Who's this guy? I don't know. What did he say? Who is he? Because I always liked and then in the second one, he leaves the city to escape popular culture, to try to clear his head a little bit. But he goes with his friend who is obsessed with a soap opera. And so he deals with that. And then in the third one, it's called Doctors. He is diagnosed with the disease that Moretti in real life was actually diagnosed with, where his symptoms were constant itching and he couldn't sleep. And that sequence is more serious, obviously. It's a little bit more life and death, but also as absurd as the others. And I like this movie so much because it really explores this postmodern dilemma where you have a character who can't escape the simulacra around him. He's in search of truth. He's looking for something real, the real Jennifer Beals, the truth at one point about the great Italian filmmaker, Pier Paolo Pasolini. He goes to where he was murdered and tries to see if he can figure out something about the truth about what happened there. He's trying to find the real diagnosis and cure for his illness, and every doctor has a different theory and a different prescription for it. All of it, though, is incredibly funny, and Moretti is just such a smart, funny protagonist that you'll follow him anywhere, including just riding his Vespa around Rome. So I really love Caro Diario, and I hope more people eventually will get a chance to see it. Constant itching and couldn't sleep. That sounds like me putting together this list. There you go. I did manage a number four, though, Chungking Express. Wong Kar Wai's third film really gives Pulp Fiction a run for its money when it comes to a signature cinematic style. I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's kind of like a a despondent extravagance that he manages to conjure up in his films. This one is a parallel narrative about two cops who are dealing with the loss of love and the possibility of new romance. But the narrative, such as it is, does little to evoke this theme of disconnection compared to what the visuals do. It's all in the visuals and the cinematic technique in a Wong Kar Wai film. One signature technique that he uses here, and I don't know how he does it, but he occasionally gets a figure or an object at the center of the frame to kind of stand still while all the other people are blurring past and around it. It's almost as if he's using slow motion and fast motion at once. What all this style does for Chungking Express and a lot of his films really is it makes the idea of romance ineffable. So you can't describe it. You can't really talk about it. You can see it. You can hear it. You can sense it. That's what happens Mm -hmm. in his movies. I think 
that's a great way to put it. Very sensual. Not only Chunking Express, but all of Wong Kar Wai's films. It's a great pick. My number four, I'm going to try to follow up Dear Diary here by upping the ante on postmodernism. For sheer spectacle, it's tough to beat Natural Born Killers. The Oliver wow. Stone film, written, of course, at least the original story, by Quentin Tarantino. Yep. And this is something that came up when we did our top 10 films of the year. I talked about The Tree of Life, and I mentioned that I kind of applied that that criteria that if every film from this year was going to be destroyed, from 2011, you could only hang on to one film where you were putting it away in a time capsule for all time, I thought Tree of Life had to be that movie. That's not always the criteria I apply to top 10 lists or to these lists even, these year-by-year countdowns, but I did use it a little bit here. I think sometimes it can be instructive to think about it in those terms. You only have five movies. You can only save five films. So sometimes there's that distinction between what's the best and what's your favorite. I usually try to go with, well, they're the same thing. If it was my favorite, it's because it's really, really good. In this case, though, where I think Natural Born Killers is so appropriate for this top five, it goes back to what I joked about at the beginning of the show. I was just looking for some random facts about 1994 that kind of summed up the year. And you see Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. You see the OJ trial. You see Lorena Bobbitt. You see the media spectacle that really seems to have flourished in 1994. And you think that maybe Oliver Stone was prophetic in some way, obviously working on this film before that and getting it released in 1994. You think of the sleazy tabloid journalist that Robert Downey Jr. plays in the movie. Is it really worth it? Was what worth Was massacring all those people worth being separated from your love for the rest of your life? You mean, was an instant of my purity worth a lifetime of your lies, Wayne? Please explain to me, where's the purity that you couldn't live without in the 52 people who are no longer on this planet because they met you and Mallory? What's that f***ing pure about that? How do you do it? You'll never understand, Wayne. It's a tough film to watch. It's extreme and it's hyperbolic in its form and its content, but that's what good satire is. And I think Natural Born Killers is good satire. The scene, for example, that really stands out that I'll always think of when I think first about Natural Born Killers is the Rodney Dangerfield scene playing Juliette Lewis's father and he's yelling at Mallory and he meets Mickey for the first time. It's horrifying and it's brilliant. It makes their life into this TV sitcom from hell. I think it's emblematic of what he's doing satirically throughout the entire film. I'm actually a really big fan of Natural Born Killers. My number four. Hi, Dad. How is work? What work? I'm unemployed. Where the f*** are you been, huh? Well, you look nice, Mallory. Yuck, you look like... (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Well, I'm gonna go now. I'll be back at midnight, okay? What are you wearing? A broomstick and a trash bag? Why don't you put some meat on you, huh? A few pounds lighter, you'll be missing the opium. What the hell do you think you're going, huh? I'm going to the John Lee Hooker concert with Donna. I told you that yesterday. First off, you don't tell me anything. You asked my permission. Yeah, that's one I would have liked to have revisited. The way you're talking about it makes it seem like it's the sort of movie that gets better because of some of those predicting qualities Maybe it might so. have. Yeah, that could be. I went with a documentary for number three, and it's Hoop Dreams. Last year's The Interrupters was another reminder of how vital director Steve James has been in putting a big screen face on otherwise ignored individuals. In this case, it's two poor Chicago teens who dream of playing professional basketball. When I get in the NBA, I'm a, uh, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go see my mama. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to go there and make sure my sister and my brother's okay. Try <laughs> to get my dad Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oldsmobile so they could cruise in the game. Now, the best documentaries, I think, get us to look at things that we think we know and see them in a new way. And I'm a pretty serious Chicago Bulls fan. So this was an eye-opening picture of how the culture of the NBA influences the fortunes for good and for bad a lot of times of real kids and their families. This was a whole new world to me, even though I'd been a fan of the NBA since a kid to see this side of it. I think Hoop Dreams also opened the possibilities for documentaries alone as an art form. We think about Michael Moore, but really Hoop Dreams was a landmark in that it allowed them to be epic films worthy of real Oscars. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean it got out of the documentary ghetto by getting a Best Editing nomination. Now, it didn't win, but even just the fact that it kind of broke through to nudge aside some of those real movies, as Hollywood likes to think of them, was a real hallmark. Yeah, though famously and controversially, it was overlooked for Best Documentary. Well, isn't that to be expected? I mean, it is. Yeah. At this point, unfortunately. But I'm always glad to see Hoop Dreams get some love here on the show. My number three is a fiction film that has either the grand honor or the dubious distinction of being the number one highest rated film, according to users of the Internet Movie Database in their top 250. Mm -hmm. It is the Frank Darabont film, The Shawshank Redemption. And I think it's been number one on that poll for a long, long time. So even as new generations discover it and that list, we can mock it quite a bit. But there are some pretty good titles throughout that top 250. Overall, it's not as bad as I maybe thought it would be when I glanced at it for the first time in a long time today. The Godfather and The Godfather 2 were in the top five. So for the most part, that list is pretty decent. Pulp Fiction, actually number four on that list of the 250. Shawshank, though, is number one, and it's a movie that I haven't had an opportunity to rewatch. I really have never examined the Shawshank Redemption, but fortunately, Josh, this isn't a review. We're not discussing it in detail. I have no obligation here to say anything more insightful <laughs> or analytical than what the great screenwriter William Goldman said when he picked it as his best picture of 1994 when he wrote an Oscars article for Premiere Magazine because it moved the hell out of me. That's how we put it. It's a great yarn with a great central relationship, that friendship between Red and Andy. Stylistically, I love how Darabont manages to make it feel a little bit like a fairy tale. It feels like this faraway land and a place we're not familiar with, but at the same time maintains the sense of realism. It's very grounded. There are high stakes in the film that we're really invested in. And of course, it's got the very memorable ending where it was maybe the only time at least the only time I can think of in cinema history where I know for a fact that test audiences were ultimately responsible for the film and they were right because the ending's pretty brilliant as it ended up. So The Shawshank Redemption is my number three. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still a whole thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. Yeah, I've got to say, I didn't give that much consideration, and this is the snob in me, largely because of that IMDb list. You really? Know, I, I don't think I've seen it since it came out, maybe once since then, but it's been a while, and it's definitely deserving of a revisit. But I, you know, I see that list, and I, I just feel like it's going to be populist in bad ways. Populist it's, can be good, too. It is populist in good ways. Well, and maybe that's sure. the case, so that may be unfair on my part. Instead, for number two, I went with Ed Wood. 
Tim Burton and Johnny Depp's biopic of Ed Wood, who's often cited as the worst director of all time, might actually be Burton's last great film when you look at his filmography Maybe. now, before the size of his larger projects kind of became too big for him. This could have been a send-up of the notoriously bad 1950s exploitation films that Wood made. But instead, what this movie has is so much affection. There's affection for filmmaking. There's affection strictly for the creative impulse, whether it's good or bad, what comes of it. There's affection for odd people with unusual habits. Mr. Weiss, I have never told anyone what I'm about to tell you, but I really want this job. I like to dress in women's clothing. You're fruit? No, not at all. I love women. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. You're not a fruit. No, I'm all men. I even fought in WW2. Of course, I was wearing women's undergarments under my uniform. You gotta be kidding me. It's just such a delight to watch a movie like this. There's actually, though, when you think about Edward now, a little bit of sadness to it as well. In today's increasingly homogenized marketplace of multiplexes, you have to wonder, could a movie like Ed Wood find a place? Or even the people who are portrayed in Ed Wood in today's cinema, could they find a place? It kind of feels like they couldn't. Maybe Mm -hmm. something like this could take place only on YouTube these days where kind of everyone could be their own Ed Wood. Yeah. And I think you do see that a lot on YouTube. Maybe he was a precursor to that in some ways. And either way, Tim Burton seems like the only director that still really is focused on bringing these kind of characters to the big screen, though maybe with diminishing returns, as you mentioned. My number two is a film you already mentioned. It is the movie Hoop Dreams. Five years and 250 hours of footage may not get you an Academy Award nomination, but it's going to get Peter Gilbert and Steve James and Frederick Marks on this list twice, apparently. Of course, as you said, following the lives of these two aspiring future NBA stars. That's what they want to be, and we see their struggle as they they go to school and try to play basketball and also be students. And I love that you said how it showed you a whole new world, because that's something I made note of here as well. I think it showed many of us, for me, for a kid living in Iowa in a fairly small town who only had images of what inner city life was like for African Americans from Hollywood, I got a chance to see what it was really like. And this story is one that is the stuff of Hollywood dreams, but it showed us the struggle. It showed us the reality of it, that talent and big dreams don't always lead to the fulfillment of the American dream like Hollywood often shows us. And you talked about the cultural impact of the NBA. It's something I thought about as well when I was thinking about this film again in my mind, because that time period here in Chicago, you can't think about basketball without thinking about Michael Jordan. This film was being shot over his main years, his prime years of prominence. He won his first titles 1991 to 1993. This movie, of course, came out in 94. And we all know the commercial, the Gatorade commercial. Everyone wants to be like Mike. It sounds great in commercials. Hoop Dream shows you what it really takes and what it's really like to try to be like Mike. Yeah, like great documentaries, it works as a wonderful time capsule as well. Mm -hmm. Number one, Forrest Gump. Went with Forrest Gump. Yeah. Now, Forrest Gump was positioned in 1994 and even more so since, I think, as the anti-pulp fiction. The Academy got it right is what you're saying. Forrest Gump. Well, they should have gone with Pulp Fiction. They should have gone with Pulp Fiction. And maybe that's a good thing to preface here as uh, we're expecting what sort of feedback we might get. I think Pulp Fiction is the better film. It is the film of 1994. 
But it was a tougher decision to make revisiting both of them. And it's been a tough decision for me since they both came out. They're close. They're close. I'll just say that. But it's been thought of as having to like one or the other ever since. I I get that sense anyway. I don't think that was true then. It's not true now that you have to feel that way. There are plenty of reasons to appreciate both. And one is their similarly deft handling of a complicated narrative. I think they both handle narratives quite well that are tough. There are transitions between decades and thematic concerns here that are so well crafted. Just one example is the running montage, Mm -hmm. where that takes us across history and at the same time through Forrest as he comes to terms with what his relationship with Jenny really is. Will you marry me? I'd make a good husband, Jenny. You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me. You don't want to marry me. Why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man. But I know what love is. Revisiting Forrest Gump again, there were many things I love about this film still. And one of them stood out to me, especially because of watching Alhazar Balthazar in the same week. The mythic character of Forrest Gump, and I see him as a mythic character Uh, more than a realistic portrayal of someone who's mentally challenged or something like that, because I often bristle at those sort of portrayals and things like I am Sam, and I I put Forrest Gump in a different category. It's a better film, certainly. Well, (laughs) for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But the mythic character of Forrest Gump, I think, also offers us this gaze of innocence that I talked about with Balthazar. And so it's a different way of looking at both American and personal history when we're experiencing all of this through Forrest's eyes. I really think this is an authentic film. It's gotten a reputation as being too sentimental or hokey. Watching it again, it did not feel that way to me. I think it's authentic. I think it's artful. I think it's genuinely moving. And like I said, it made the decision of the best film of 1994 tougher than many might expect. Well, I didn't get a chance to revisit Forrest Gump, and I would have liked to because like Pulp Fiction, it's one I saw in the theater twice when it came out and responded very favorably to it both times, but haven't seen it since, maybe caught scenes here and there on TV. But I'm unashamed as well about loving that film. It seems to have become fashionable to dislike that movie, maybe because it beat out Pulp Fiction. But that's really not fair to the movie. The Academy makes mistakes all the time, as we've certainly documented here on the show. I remember reading some critics then, and I haven't revisited their comments since, so I may be getting this wrong, but I remember there was a sense among some critics that, it was just too simple. Its its view of history was too reductionist, and, and they were really offended by it almost. And I remember reading that at the time and thinking, it's almost like complaining about a black and white film for being black and white or an animated film for being animated. That's what Forrest Gump is. We're not supposed to take it seriously as this expose of the 20th century. It's this quick jaunt, funny jaunt through 20th century America through the character of Forrest Gump. It's not and nothing a more than lesson, that. Yeah. It's not a history lesson. I like Forrest Gump as well, but it is one I do want to revisit and see if I would definitely consider it for this list or not. As it is, it's just an honorable mention. For me, my number one, another film that came up earlier in this list. And I was really nervous before we did this top five, Josh, that we would have a lot of overlap. Turns out we only have two hoop dreams in this movie, Chunking Express. Oh, the nice. Wong Kar Wai film is my number one. And as I was reviewing my top five picks, I recognize that the theme of escape is really something that ran through my picks. 
Nanny Moretti leaving Rome for the islands in Caro Diario, Mickey and Mallory on the run from their families and the police and natural born killers, the prison and Shawshank Redemption, poverty in the inner city and hoop dreams. And then that brings us to Chunking Express, which is a film in which these protagonists are really trapped in prisons of their own making. They're living in a thriving, bustling city surrounded by millions of people, but they're somehow stuck in their own worlds. They're stuck in their own heads. They feel isolated and alone, and they're looking for some kind of escape, some kind of release from their worlds. And it's a movie that reminds me of another great Wong Kar Wai movie, In the Mood for Love, where you have these characters wanting desperately to connect with someone. You talked about that theme of disconnection. Of course, the great stars of the film, including Tony Leung and Faye Wong, are so good. You've got Christopher Doyle's cinematography, which you touched on as well. And I guess I'll close with a quote here from our friend at the AV Club, the editor there, Keith Phipps, who wrote this in a DVD review of Chunking Express. He says, in the Hong Kong of Chunking Express, nothing stays put. Crowds pulse through streets lit by the glow of convenience stores and lined with fresh fruit and questionable electronics. Diners eat on the run, often from stands like the Midnight Express, a friendly establishment that wraps salads and fish and chips in aluminum foil as if they were interchangeable and already well on their way to being trash. The environment's constant reminders of the impermanence of all things can take a psychic toll on its residents, which I just love the eloquence of how Keith stated that. I think he sums up the film nicely. But again, with this film and others, on my top five, there's something about people wanting something more permanent, striving to find something real. I don't know if I can put that in a larger perspective and talk about how it really relates to that time period or not, but it is something that stood out to me as I went through my picks of the best films of 1994. So Chunking Express, my number one. Josh, what about any honorable mentions? Well, we talked about Quiz Show, definitely thought about that, just didn't have time to revisit it. Exotica is also one that I yeah, would have Adam liked McGoin. to have revisit. Yep. And I'm sure there's a whole list of films that I've never seen at all since I wasn't reviewing at that time. And we'll we'll likely hear about those, so I'll be eager to see what uh, some of those titles are. Well, I'll mention three of them. This okay. is my for shame list that I know are going to come up. You're for shaming up. yourself. I'm shaming okay. myself preemptively. I know people are going to write in about Bellatar's Seven and a half hour yes, Satan yes. Tango, which I haven't seen. I really wanted to see Louis Maul's film Vanya on 42nd Street. Didn't have time to catch up with that. And somehow I've seen other Whit Stillman films, but not Barcelona, which I think a lot of people feel is probably his best. Okay. I'm not a big Whit Stillman guy, so I really wanted to see if Barcelona is one that would work for me, but didn't have time. So that's my four shameless. In terms of honorable mentions, there were 15 other movies I strongly considered. I'm not going to list them all. Some of them you did. Heavenly Creatures, Ed Wood, Forrest Gump, Quiz Show, 32 short films about Glenn Gold I talked about. Three others I'll mention quickly. Bullets Over Broadway, the Woody Allen film. Leon, The Professional, was a 1994 film. And I'm not going to cheat like Roger Ebert did, where he put the entire Three Colors trilogy from Krzysztof Kieślowski on his list. Blue, red and white. It doesn't work, though. It is a cheat because Blue is not a 1994 film. Red and white are 1994 films. If Blue was, I definitely would have found space in my top five because Blue is my favorite. I do really like Red as well, though, and I can understand why a lot of people would probably put that in their top five. Maintenant, 
That does it for this Film Spotting Revisited. In our show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives, not quite going back to 94, but all the way back to 2005. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And we encourage you to subscribe to the Film Spotting newsletter, filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release, Midsummer, the latest horror film from the director of Hereditary, Ari Aster, and Spider-Man Far From Home. Next week on the show, we will be off for another week, but we will have another film spotting revisited. And the week after that, Friday the 19th of July, Josh and guest Tasha Robinson and Angelica Jade Bastien will review Midsummer and The Farewell. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More info is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.